please to 1 Timothy as we come back to chapter 1 in our series through 1 Timothy. I hope she doesn't mind me embarrassing her this morning, but uh, over here to my left on the right side is Christine Moreno, who came as a visitor this morning. <laughs> she, was, she was a member of my church in Kansas, and uh, because of the military moving people around, she and her husband live in El Paso, Texas now, and she comes to work in Mesa, correct? That's where you come sometimes. So she surprised us this morning, but not all of my family is here today because uh, a couple of the kids are sick. So if you wondered how the Hugheses were leaving such a small footprint up here in the front, <laughs> it is because uh, we're missing a few family members this morning. So uh, some sickness we don't want all the rest of you to have. Therefore, Becky and some of the kids stayed home this morning. We continue our series in 1 Timothy, and this is really part two of the section that we were looking at last week. As we were beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 11, today we're going to focus on mainly that section in verses 8 through 11. For the reading of the word of the king, would you please stand? This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to begin again as we did last week in verse 3 and read through verse 11. The Apostle Paul writing to his servant Timothy, pastoring in Ephesus. Hear the word of the Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the scriptures this morning, we desire to be taught by your word. We desire that we would be guided and trained by these things. What does it mean, therefore, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully? It's not laid down for the just, but for the unjust. So how does this pertain to us? How do we use it rightly? For we know that the law is good. We know that it is the very word of God. And every word of the Lord applies to us. So then help us to apply this to our lives in a right and understanding way, in a way that is glorifying to God our Savior. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Years back when I was pastoring in Kansas, I had a ministry at the jail and oftentimes, an officer would call me if somebody had been arrested and would say, 
This young man doesn't have a church in town. There's no other minister to call. Our chaplain is not in the office at the present. Would you come and please pray with this young man or young woman, whoever was recently arrested? There was one time when I was called by one of those officers, and he said to me, there's a man here. He's been in jail for a couple of days. He got arrested for something I'll tell you about when you get here. But one thing that I would like for you to do for me if you can, can you help him to see that he's wrong? Because he doesn't seem to understand that he broke the law. Is there a way that you can help him see that? Now, I don't know if he really had intended that I would show him that he had broken God's law. He probably just wanted me to help him see that he had broken the law in town. But this young man didn't think that he was wrong in any way. So I got to the jail and I said, do you mind if I see his arrest report? And so the officer showed it to me. And when I looked at it, I chuckled. And I said, is this accurate? This is not a typo. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you that all of that is true. I said, okay. So I went into in kind of the little holding area. They had some cubicles, and they would bring a prisoner out to you and, and set him down, and, and you could meet with him in one of those cubicles. It wasn't terribly isolated. It was pretty open. It was an open room. So whatever I shared with him in one cubicle could be heard by somebody else in the other. But I sat down with this young man, and I said to him, so you got arrested for what? I wanted to put it on him to see if he understood why he got arrested. And, and his first words were, I don't know, man, the cops just have it out for me, man. <laughs> so evidently, it was just as the officer had said to me, this young man just doesn't think that he is wrong. And I said, well, I read your arrest report. It says that you were arrested because you were driving while intoxicated. What were you intoxicated with? He's like, man, I've been smoking a little bit. And I said, yeah, you've been smoking a little bit of marijuana. What else were you doing? Well, I've been drinking a little bit too. I said, okay, so you were drunk and you were high and you were driving and the officer came up behind you and saw that the car was swerving. You were apparently inebriated. And when he stopped you, he could smell the marijuana in your car, which you were smoking while you were driving. And, and he said, yeah, man, but it's, it's like, well, I didn't harm anybody. It, it was a... I broke a law that wasn't even uh, an offense to anyone else. I wasn't hurting anybody. I don't understand why I'm getting arrested for this again, because it wasn't a, re a repeated offense. And I said, do you know how fast you were driving? He said, well, I guess I was speeding as the cop was pulling me over. He didn't even remember. And, and this was the part where I had laughed at his arrest record. I said, you were driving 11 miles an hour. <laughs> You were on the highway doing 11 miles an hour. And he said, well, see, then that just goes to show. I wasn't gonna hurt. How can you hurt somebody at 11 miles an hour? I said, you can still hit somebody with a one and a half ton vehicle and kill them even at 11 miles an hour. And you don't remember it. You don't even remember this happening. So who's to say that you did not strike somebody and cost them their lives? So tried to help him to see, to open his eyes to recognize that what he had done was illegal. What he had done could have been worse. And I said to him, you should be praising God that you did not do anything worse. That his grace was exercised upon you in that you did not kill somebody else, but this officer pulled you over and put you in a place where you would not be a harm to anyone else. Now, in the conversation that I had with this young man, I don't know that I necessarily convinced him. I never saw him again after that particular encounter. 
But this is one of the uses of the law, that the law would demonstrate to us that we are, in fact, lawless. That we are, in fact, in trouble with the judge. And who is going to take our penalty away from us? How can we pay back? How can we pay for the crime that we have done? What do we do to pay for this crime? We see this law being laid down for us here, even in the section that we're looking at today in 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? That's what we will consider as we embark upon the scripture this morning. Paul goes on to say, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. If this young man had been following the law, would he have been arrested? No. The law isn't laid down for those who keep the law. It is laid down for those who break the law. Who are the lawbreakers? Who has the law been laid down against? We consider that also as we come to the scriptures today. But let me keep these things in context. Remembering the outline that I had presented to you last week. First of all, the theme of our passage is very simply that we understand this to be the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's the statement that Paul makes in verse 4, and that is our motivation that we would be in love, issuing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, and we would be devoted to the gospel message that had been proclaimed to us. And the phrase that Paul applies to simply the gospel is that it is the stewardship from God that is by faith. It is something that God has entrusted us with, that we believe in, that we are to not only believe, but then share with others. And this Reminder of the law that comes up in verses 8 through 11 gives us some application in how that may be applied to others. And we'll get to that when we get to our application. But first of all, our outline goes like this. First of all, we see in verses 3 through 4 a contrast between good doctrine and bad. What was the very first instruction that Paul had for Timothy? I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that... You may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then even showing the different doctrines that some of those guys were teaching. They are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. It doesn't produce godliness. It doesn't build in someone faith in the truth of the gospel. The second part in our outline was a contrast between sound teachers and false. That was in verses 5 through 8. So Paul begins this time in this part by noting what is true. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then contrasting that with what the false teachers were doing, their motivation. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Meaning they're in it for themselves. And not actually desiring that the household of God would be built up by the word of God. They've swerved into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, so they were imposing legalistic things, but they did not understand what they were saying or the things about which they made their confident assertions. Now, Paul, in this gospel of grace that he had been proclaiming, there were detractors that accused him of trying to do away with the law. Paul is saying the law is bad. And he has this 
ministry of grace in which you can go do whatever you want to do and God's just going to forgive you for it. So what use is the law anymore? That's been the accusation that's been made against Paul. But Paul comes back at the beginning of this next section, and this is our third part, where we will be investing ourselves today, where Paul says we know the law is good. He's not trying to do away with the law. In fact, he says in Romans 3.31, we uphold the law. So he's not trying to do away with it. The law is good. It is every bit the word of God as the gospel is. But there is a right way to apply the law. And these men who try to fancy themselves as teachers of the law neither understand the law nor apply it correctly. And so the question that is being answered for us here in verses 9 through 11, verses 8 through 11, is how do you know if something is bad doctrine? So remember once again, we have the contrast between good doctrine and bad. We have a contrast between sound teachers and false teachers. But how do you know if doctrine is good or doctrine is bad? What does Paul point back to? He points back to the law. And so we look at the law and would be contrasting it, therefore, with what these false teachers are teaching. If, is what they're teaching lining up with good doctrine that would therefore include the right teaching of the law? The good doctrine is the gospel that was stated in verse 4. Good doctrine is also right teaching of the rest of the word of God. So what does the law look like and how is it applied correctly and that's what we have here in verses 8 through 11. So once again, the statement that Paul makes, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's what it says here in the English Standard Version. So what does it mean to use the law lawfully? Paul states that the law is good. In other words, the gospel teaches nothing contrary to the law. Even though we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. That does not abrogate the law. That does not throw out the law. The law is still good. It teaches nothing contrary to the gospel, and the gospel teaches nothing contrary to the law. In fact, it is through the law that we understand sound doctrine. John Calvin goes through three uses of the law. There are three ways in which the, the law is useful to us, even as Christians. Number one, the first use of the law is to reflect. Number two, it is to restrain. And number three, it is to reveal. Now, these aren't exactly the words that Calvin uses, but I'm a Baptist, and I use alliteration. So I'm going to make all three of those points of the law start with the letter R. So the three uses of the law, it is to reflect, it is to restrain, and it is to reveal. First of all, how does the law reflect? Well, specifically, I chose that word because the way that Calvin defines it is the law is like a mirror in which we look into and we see that we're lawbreakers. We have broken the law, and not a single person can say that I have done righteously and I have kept the law perfectly. James, in fact, uses exactly this illustration in his epistle. He says, don't just be hearers of the law, but do what it says. Otherwise, you're like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then he walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, that seems absurd. 
How do you look at your face in a mirror and then when you turn away from the mirror, suddenly, oh, I forgot my own reflection and so you have to look back at the mirror to see your reflection again. That does sound absurd because the same absurdity applies to the person who hears of their sin in the Bible and then turns away and forgets that I was a sinner or that any of those things applied to me at all. So you would be like a man who looks into the word of God and has the word of God speak to you and say to you that you are a sinner worthy of the judgment of God. You have heard that from the word, but then would you turn away from it and ignore what the word of God has said about you? The apostle Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't know what it was, what it meant to be a coveter until I heard from the law of God, do not covet. And then I realized I'm a coveter. I've done exactly that. I have greedily desired that which did not belong to me and have thought in my heart I would truly be happy if I could have this other thing. God, why don't you give me this other thing? And it awakens in his heart an awareness of the sin that he has committed against God of coveting, that he is a breaker of the 10th commandment. So the law reveals in that way or reflects in that way. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is that it is a restrainer. And what do I mean by restrainer? But the law prevents you from doing worse than you actually would do. There are many people out there in the world today who are not Christians. You can walk out these doors. You can go down the street. You can find somebody who is so lost, who is so contrary to God, who is so in rebellion against the creator of the universe, it's as though he's got a shovel in his hand and he's digging a hole right there trying to go to hell. You can find people who are that depraved and that in rebellion against God. And yet, if you looked at their moral lives, you would say for the most part, that person's a, a law keeper. He's not out murdering people. He helps old ladies across the street. He might even take a, a bag of necessities to one of the homeless people in Casa Grande. That person, for the most part, looks like a good person. Why? Well, because there is a law that becomes a teacher. It is a restrainer preventing us from doing worse than we would actually do. As the Apostle Paul said with the Galatians that the law was a tutor for you. Before there was the gospel, the law taught. There was a direction that was given. There was a restraint that there was because of the law. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the law is even written on all of our hearts to a certain degree. Everybody has a conscience. Even the, the most dedicated person to the word of this age who would say that truth is relative, morals are relative, there isn't any real right and wrong, even they know that there is a right and a wrong. For that statement that they've said contradicts itself. There is no right and wrong. Is that right? Well, if it's right, then it contradicts the statement and there is such a thing as right and wrong. R.C. Sproul was once asked, how do you teach a person that there is such a thing as right and wrong? And he said, steal his wallet. <laughs> and he will know right away, you've done wrong to me. So there is an understanding in the law that restrains and it prevents us from being more evil than we could be. It, preve it prevents this very town, no matter how highly you may think of Casa Grande, it prevents this town from diving into worse evils than it already does. The law is a restrainer in that way. 
The third use of the law is that it reveals. So we have, first of all, it reflects. Secondly, it restrains. Third, it reveals. And now how does the law reveal? Specifically, it reveals the will of God. What we must do that is pleasing unto the Lord. When we read in the law, do not murder, it's not simply enough that we just kind of sit back and not kill anybody, and therefore I am a law keeper. But what should we do to ensure that we're not murdering or hating our brother or something to the like? But we would love one another. As Paul points out in Galatians chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 13, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus even said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor and yourself. On these two commands hinge all the law and the prophets. So if you're loving your neighbor, you're not breaking the law. You're not murdering, you're not committing adultery, you're not stealing, so on and so forth. And so this is a way that the law reveals. It reveals to us the will of God that we may do what is pleasing to the Lord. So to review once again the three uses of the law, number one, it reflects. It reflects back to us the sinful person that we are. Number two, it restrains, keeps us from going into worse evils. And that is one way that the law would apply in the civil sense as well. And third, it reveals. It reveals the very will of God that we may do what is pleasing unto the Lord. This is the way that the law continues to be relevant even to us as Christians. For we read, of course, in Romans 6, verse 14, that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. So how would the law therefore continue to apply to us? As Paul said in Romans 3.31, we do not throw away the law. In fact, we uphold the law. So if the law no longer applies to us in a sense that we're not under the law, but we're under grace, so what therefore is our beholding to the law? But in these three ways that we have seen, this reflection, this restraining, and this revealing that we may do the will of God. That full verse, by the way, Romans 6.14 says, sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. That's the part of the verse that people tend to cut out. It's not permission for you to go on sinning so that you just have grace abounding to you. For as Paul says in the chapter, do not submit your members any longer to be members of unrighteousness, but submit your members unto God as members of righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, you're not condemned by the law, but you are under grace. For us as Christians, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So let's keep those things in mind, that the law is still necessary, it still has use for us as Christians, the law is still good. The gospel teaches nothing contrary to the law. The law is not in any way contrary to the gospel. But we understand this distinction between the law and the gospel. We understand also, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the law had no power to save. You could not keep the law. It could not save you. In fact, the law brought death. But in the way that it revealed to you your sin and the wages of sin, which is death, then we also come to the understanding through the gospel, our need for a savior, and that savior as revealed in the gospel is Jesus Christ. The law and the gospel go together in another way, which I'll come back to in a moment when we get to our application toward the end. But where Paul says here that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, how may we sum this up? John Calvin says the following, quote, 
In sum, Paul argues that the law is good, but it also must be used appropriately. In other words, although the wicked mar and pervert God's word, whatever they do, they cannot alter the fact that it is always sound and always profitable. Now we understand that these false teachers that had come into this church in Ephesus, these very men that Paul has said to Timothy, don't let them teach any different doctrine. They were teaching some kind of law, but they didn't understand. They didn't understand it, as Paul said in verse 7. They desired to be teachers of the law, but they did not understand what they said or the things about which they made their confident assertions. They were most likely Judaizers, so they were doing as said in Acts 15.1 that the Judaizers were doing. They were telling people that if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And if you're not doing these works, upholding these laws that God had given to the Jewish people, then you are not truly saved. So being saved by our works. And they would probably say, you can believe in Jesus. That is good. You should believe in Jesus. But you also have to be doing these works. So they were marrying uh, this this law of or or this gospel of grace with a gospel of works, which is really no gospel at all. You're saved by faith and works was essentially their teaching. So Paul points out to Timothy, here's the right use of the law, and here's how it rightly applies, and even names laws. So going on into verse nine, understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient. And as we had summarized earlier, meaning those who break the law. You're not going to have the law laid down against you unless you break it. But as said in James, if you've broken one law, you're guilty of all of it. Now, this is not just a biblical understanding of breaking the law. We understand as a society that this is even how it applies when you break any one of man's laws. If you break man's laws, you're guilty of all of it. A person might go to prison for breaking one law, but they will be in prison for the rest of their lives as though they had broken all of it. The one law may be the thing that counts against them, but just because they kept 800 other laws doesn't credit to them some righteousness that allows them to get out of jail free. So we understand even this concept from, uh, from a naturalistic standpoint, from the general revelation of God, we might term it, that even society doesn't operate in such a way that, well, you can merit righteousness if you keep 800 laws and then you're allowed to break one or two and that's just fine. If a man were to stand before a judge who was guilty of killing a child, let's say the the man that I had talked with in jail who was inebriated had struck a car or, or struck a child with his car, even though he was only going 11 miles an hour, but he kills that child. Could he stand before the judge and say, well, I've kept every other law. I just broke this one. So, hey, you got to show me mercy. You got to show me leniency. If the judge were to say to that man, well, you're right. You kept all these other laws. You just broke one or two here. So we're going to let you out on good behavior. Would anyone, Christian or not, in their right mind, say that that is a just judge. We would say that injustice has been done there. So you understand the concept that if we break one law, we're guilty of breaking all of it. And so Paul says, who is the law laid down against for the lawless and the disobedient? 
for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So here, Paul ties it back into the lesson on sound doctrine. Those who break the law do what is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do this more toward the beginning or more toward the end, but I'm going to go ahead and take you through this first as an overview, and then we'll look at each one of these lawless things individually. But see if you can identify what it is that Paul is doing here. So first of all, he says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. He says, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Is there a pattern here? What is Paul doing? Is he, why did he pick these specific sins? Why these out of the law that he lays down? What's the pattern? Can you identify it? So first of all, he says the law is not laid down for the just, but for lawless and disobedient. That's kind of an overview. If you've broken any of these laws, or if you've acted lawlessly in any of these ways, then you are therefore in the category of lawless and disobedient, right? So that's kind of looking over the whole list. But then, the next part, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and profane. What's the first commandment? I'm God, you don't get another one. That's, that's the Gabe version of the first commandment. There is one God, and we are to worship the Lord God. The one who does not worship the, the Lord God is what? Ungodly. So the law is laid down for the ungodly and the sinners. What is the second commandment? You'll not even raise up a graven image to worship something that looks like God or worship something else as God that is sinful. What's the third commandment? You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What is the fourth commandment? You will even honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So what are the next two on that list? The unholy and profane. Are you identifying the pattern here? What's the next one? For those who strike their fathers and mothers. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. For murderers. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Now the next two go together. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. What is, what is that seventh commandment? You will not commit adultery. The next one is enslavers. Now what's the eighth commandment? You will not steal. So what are enslavers? Literally the word translates from the Greek as man-stealer. So it's a person who would steal somebody and force them into slavery. That would be stealing another person or stealing from another man. And then the next one is liars. Well, what's the ninth commandment? Bearing false witness. And then lastly, we have perjurers, 
which is somebody that is doing anything contrary to the law. And even that tenth commandment becomes a summary of the entire law, which is what? You shall not covet. It's that tenth commandment that goes right for the matter of the heart. You shall not even from your heart desire those things that God does not desire for you. And whoever does such a thing is guilty of breaking all of the law, which is what a perjurer does. And so perjurers becomes the conclusion of that and also the application of the rest of the law that came before. And so then Paul sums this up by saying whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what have we gone through here? We've just gone through the moral law. We've gone through the Ten Commandments. And Paul had a different sinner attached to a different commandment. Now, we do this whenever we go through catechism. When we go through our Baptist catechism, you'll have a, a, a catechism question that'll be something like, what is the blank commandment? Well, the blank commandment is this. That's the answer to the catechism. And then the next question will be, what is annexed by this commandment? Or how do we apply this commandment? So we do that in our catechism. Paul is simply doing that here with this list that he lays out. He's applying the Ten Commandments. If a person has profaned the name of God, which commandment have they broken? If a person has struck their father and mother, which would be to murder their father and mother, those who have committed patricide and matricide, what is it that they have done? Which commandment have they broken? The commandment that says, do not murder, but more than this, they've dishonored father and mother. You have it explicitly then said, the law is laid down for murderers. In verse 10, for the sexually immoral and for men who practice homosexuality. Sexual immorality is any kind of sex that is outside of marriage. For God created sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Any sex outside of that covenant union is sexually immoral. But Paul even applies that further when he says men who practice homosexuality. Now the Greek word that appears here is arsenokoites. And Paul was doing what's called a neologism where he's taking two words and he's combining them together to make another word. What two words is Paul applying? Arseno, which means man, and koites, which is better. So really, technically, the term is man better. And that which we have translated in English as being homosexuality. Paul is going back into the law, specifically the laws in Leviticus 18.22 and 20 verse 13, which says that a man shall not lie with another man as with a woman. It is an abomination and you shall put him to death. And so with those two words in the Greek Septuagint would be laying next to one another, no pun intended, arseno and koites. Paul has taken those two words exactly as they would appear in the law and putting them together and saying man betters. That even that law that says you shall not commit adultery is not just talking about a man who has sex with a woman who is not his wife. It would even apply to men who bed other men. And Paul going on from there says, enslavers, those who steal, liars, those who bear false witness, perjurers, those who would even covet and transgress the rest of the law. All of these, Paul says are contrary to sound doctrine. 
Now, what was happening with these men who were twisting the law, who were not applying it correctly, the laws that they were teaching were not in the law. Or they were taking laws and applying those things that ceremonially Christ had already fulfilled. They were saying you still have to do these things in order to be saved. Paul lays down, here's what the law is. And instead, these men invent doctrines or they go back to laws that Christ had already fulfilled that have nothing to do with your salvation. And they're trying to say that you must do these things in order to be saved. Remember that they go, they also devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. So they're just making stuff up and saying, you have to do this or you have to believe this if you want to have eternal life. But in so doing, they are ignoring what is actually said in the law. They're not teaching the real law. They're making up their own laws. And my friends, that is happening in a lot of American evangelical churches today. Where they won't even teach the things that I just had to articulate that Paul wrote down to Timothy. I don't even have to come up with a sermon like, let's go through a list of sins. I don't have to do that. Paul has laid them down right here. The law has already said what is unholy before God. What is lawless? What is sin? As John said in 1 John, sin is lawlessness. There's your definition of sin right there. It is breaking the law that God has laid down. But these men ignore that. They won't teach that. They won't teach righteousness according to God's word. They will teach righteousness according to their own word. And so what they are teaching is contrary to sound doctrine. They won't warn people about the sins that they've committed and the wrath of God that is coming against all those who love lawlessness. Instead, they make up their own laws and they will say things that sound great to an audience, that an audience loves to listen to because either it appeals to their flesh or they think to themselves, well, I can do that. Be circumcised to be saved? Sure. I can do that. Take communion to be saved? Yeah, I can do that. Do things that are simple and easy and merit my own salvation because I've done it. And then they can congratulate themselves instead of glorify God. These are the very people that Paul is warning Timothy against. But Paul says that all of these sins are what are contrary to sound doctrine. So when again he had said previously to Timothy, don't let anyone teach any different doctrine. And certain persons have swerved away from sound doctrine into vain discussion. So how do you know the false doctrine and how do you know who these men are? They're men who are teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine. They're teaching what is contrary to the law or they're ignoring the law altogether. These things are contrary to sound doctrine, Paul says. And then ties this in in verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Notice that Paul has now tied the law and the gospel together. So going against the law is contrary to sound doctrine. And what we are teaching is in accordance. Sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so you have, sound doctrine would be teaching the law rightly, lawfully, as he said back 
up in verse 8. And sound doctrine would be those things that are in accordance, that flow from the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so this is what Paul lays down for Timothy that he might know the difference between a sound teacher and a false teacher. That he might know the difference between what is good doctrine and what is bad doctrine. Are these teachers teaching you to be obedient to God? Or are they laying down a whole different set of rules and saying that you have to abide by this in order to be liked by God? Paul once again says that we are to uphold the stewardship from God that is by faith. Sound in the gospel, sound in all of his word. For in these things we have been entrusted to the glory of the blessed God. The righteous will not resist the law. Rather, we uphold the law, Romans 3.31. Again, we are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. It is further in Romans 8 where Paul says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So why is it that these false teachers come in and they teach different laws or they ignore the law of God altogether or they might even encourage you in things that would lead to sensuality rather than a holy lifestyle? Why are they doing that? Because their minds are set on the flesh and not on the things of God. They are doing what is hostile to God. And indeed they cannot please God. But Paul goes on in verse 9 to say, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. As Brother Chris had read right before I came up, the word of Christ in John chapter 14, he said to his disciples, The Spirit is with you and will be in you. Talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit that was coming at Pentecost. Paul says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So may the spirit of Christ dwell in you richly. We understand when we look at the law that everyone has broken the law and we are all under the condemnation of the law because we have acted disobediently against God. Just like that young man that I talked to in the jail, he did not even know he had broken the law. But that's no excuse. You are still going to have to face the consequences of breaking the law. You can leave church today. You can go driving down the road as fast as you can because you didn't see a speed limit sign. If a cop pulls you over and says, do you know how fast you were driving? Well, no, my speedometer was out. Do you know what the speed limit is? No, I didn't see a sign. Are you going to be able to get out of a ticket? No, you're still going to get a ticket. When you appear in Chris's courtroom, just kidding, but 
If you appear before the judge, is the judge going to say, well, I, I forgive you because, yeah, you didn't know what the speed limit was. You didn't have the speedometer in your car anyway. You're still guilty of breaking the law. And we know when we look into the law that we have broken it. But we also know by reading God's word that there is a solution to our sin problem. And that solution is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead so that all who believe in him will not perish under the just punishment that we deserve for breaking the law. But we have eternal life. As said in Colossians 2.14, God has canceled the record of debt that was held against us and he's nailed it to the cross. It is finished. The atoning work of the blood of Christ has forgiven us of our sins for all those who believe. Romans 5.1, that we are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider some applications. As we've gone through this here, we've looked at last week, verses 3 through 4, the contrast between good doctrine and bad. Verses 5 through 8, the contrast between sound teachers and false. And then today, understanding what is the good doctrine and the false doctrine that we need to be aware of simply by looking back into the law, verses 8 through 11. So how do we make some applications in this? I have three applications for you. Again, because I'm a good Baptist and this should be a three-point sermon. Number one, know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Listen, friends, we know one another. You are part of this church. If you are a member here, you've gone through a membership interview with Chris or Alan, and now I get added to uh, those membership interviews as well. We've already talked with you, and we know something about your profession of faith and that you understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. I think we know one another well enough in that sense. But if there is anyone here who has never really truly come to a knowledge of their sin, if you were to stand before God, would he declare you innocent because of the precious blood of Jesus, or are you still guilty and under the condemnation of the law? If you have heard and been convicted in your heart because of the word of God today, then repent of your sin and talk with one of us afterward and ask, what does it mean to believe the gospel that I may know that I am forgiven of my sin and I have eternal life with God because of the work of Jesus Christ? Know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. The law shows us that, that we're sinners. And then the gospel tells us of the Savior. Secondly, know how to use the law lawfully. Now, let me give you an example of this. You want to get into evangelism. I know that I'm a Christian and I need to be sharing the gospel with others. How might I do this? Here's one method. It's not the only method, but here's a way that you can use the law to share the gospel with somebody else. Ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? And almost 100% of the time, they're going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. Because it says in the book of Proverbs that every man thinks that he is right in his own eyes. And you can test that person to say, do you mind if I ask you a few questions to see if you're really a good person? They'll say, okay, sure, go ahead. And you say, have you ever told a lie before? Well, sure, I've told lies before. I mean, who hasn't told a lie? Okay, what do you call a person who tells lies? Call that person a liar. How many lies does a person have to tell before you call him a liar? Just one. Have you ever stolen anything before? Well, no, I've never stolen anything before. Are you sure? Because you just told me you're a liar. (laughs) 
Well, maybe I've stolen something. I, you're right. Have you ever padded your time card with hours that you didn't really work? Are you not stealing from your employer? What do you call a person who steals? Not a stealer. They play in Pittsburgh. You call them a thief. How many times do you have to steal before you're a thief? Just once. Have you ever looked at a person with lust, undressed them in your mind? Oh, yeah, sure, I've done that before. Who hasn't done that? Okay, well, that's a serious sin. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that if you have even looked at a person with lust, it's as if you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Have you ever murdered anybody? No, I've never murdered anyone. <laughs> have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever called them names, wanting to disparage them and make them feel bad and make them feel low? Sure, I've done that before. Okay, well, Jesus, again, Matthew chapter 5, says that a person who has even hated his brother in his heart, it's as if he's murdered him in his heart and is guilty of the fires of hell, Jesus said. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain before? I've asked this question, and right there in front of me, the person will go, blank, yeah, I've taken the Lord. I've cursed, I've taken the Lord's name in vain, you know, whatever. I said, well, God has said that's a very serious sin. It's a sin of blasphemy, and he will not allow his name to be misused without there being consequences for that. So I said, what have we done here as, as I've asked you these questions and asked to see if you're a good person? We've just gone through five of the Ten Commandments. And by your own admission, you are a lying, stealing, adulterous, murderous, blasphemer at heart. And that's just five of the commandments. So if we were to stand before God on this day and God were to judge you by the standard of his law, do you think that he will let you into heaven or let you into hell? And more often than not, when I've had this conversation with somebody, they've responded, I think I'm going to hell. This is a way to use the law lawfully. That you may help a, a person see through the revealing aspect of the law, their sin, and God's righteous requirement. So that they understand that because I've broken God's law, what I deserve is judgment. And then if their heart is convicted over this, as you share this with them, you can say, can I show you what God has revealed, that you may know that your sins are forgiven, and you have everlasting life with God. And then you share what? The gospel. the gospel. Then you tell them the good news of Christ who came in flesh, who lived the good life that we cannot live, who died the death we were supposed to die, taking the wrath of God upon himself with his death on the cross, who rose again from the dead, who was seen by hundreds, who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, who is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. But all who believe in him will not perish in that judgment. But we have everlasting life. The gospel is called what? Good news. And that's the good news that we should share with others. So number one, you need to know that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Number two, you need to know how to use the law lawfully. So that you can help somebody else come to an awareness of their sin and their need for a savior. My friends, as a parent... I use the law lawfully every day to show my children their error 
that they may know their need for a savior and they may know the right way to go that pleases God and not go the wrong way. And that brings me to the third point. Third thing that we may apply according to the passage we've read today, know the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Know that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Know how to use the law lawfully. Know the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And even the law reveals that to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercies, we are to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, This is the will of God for you, that you give thanks in all circumstances in Christ Jesus. As a pastor, I'm often asked by somebody, What do you think God's will is for me? And most often when that question gets asked, what is being asked is, what, what job am I supposed to have? Where am I supposed to live? Am I supposed to get married or not? I like this girl, but she doesn't like me. Does the will of God say somewhere that she's supposed to marry me? You know, something, something to that effect. And so they're quite taken aback when the answer that I give to them, what is God's will for me, is be thankful in all things in Christ Jesus. That's not what we want to hear. We want the Bible to be our magic eight ball. And tell us what it is that we think, you know, what's God's will for me? What am I supposed to do tomorrow? But we are supposed to give thanks in all circumstances. And also, we understand God's will for us in what we heard this morning from John 14, 15. Jesus said to his disciples, you will show me that you love me when you obey my commandments. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, that his commands are not burdensome. It is our delight to worship God and obey him and live for him because Christ lived and died for us. We remember that when we come to this table this morning. When we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we remember what was needed for us to be forgiven our sins and be restored to a right relationship with God. As we come this morning to prepare our hearts to partake of this table, let us take a moment of silence and reflect upon these things, and then so eat of the bread that, was the, that represents the body that was broken for us, and drink of the cup that represents the spilling of the blood for the forgiveness of our sins.